Hello, and welcome to Real-Time Resilience, a series of podcasts from ServiceNow that will explore key top-of-mind topics for CROs. In this three-part series, we will focus on operational resilience, DORA, and monitoring controls. Our experts will share their insights and learnings to help you navigate your IT risk management journey. Your host for this podcast is Michael Tang, Head of Financial Services, Industry Risk and Compliance, Go-To-Market, EMEA for ServiceNow. Michael will be joined by Emlyn King, Manager, Solutions Consulting, Risk Solutions, and Rauda Salim, an Advisory Risk Solution Consultant at ServiceNow. This episode, they will explore the topic of operational resilience. It's time. Let's talk real-time resilience. Hello and welcome to the ServiceNow Operational Resilience Podcast. My name is Michael Tsai and I head up Risk and Compliance Go-To-Market at ServiceNow and I'll be your host today. In this episode, we're going to deep dive into operational resilience, starting with the short introduction and then discussing what the focus is for financial services firms during the transition period and how important third-party providers like ServiceNow can help and support our customers. I'm also joined today by a number of my distinguished colleagues. Firstly, Emlyn King, who is the manager in our Solution Consulting Risk Team. Prior to ServiceNow, Emlyn worked at Deloitte Consulting for over 10 years. Emlyn is also a thought leader when it comes to operational resilience, having spoken in a number of events on the topic of operational resilience. I'm also joined by Rauda Salim, who is our advisory solution consultant for risk in the Benelux region. Prior to service now, Rauda worked at Archer as a solution consultant, who is also a subject matter expert in risk compliance and resilience. Raldo is very passionate about helping clients understand the complexity and the demanding nature of regulatory risk management. Let's talk about operational resilience. Operational resilience is more of an outcome. It's about looking forward and making decisions today that prevent harm for tomorrow. Operational resilience is not about protecting the reputation of firms or the reputation of the industry, but more about preventing operational incidents from impacting consumers, financial markets, and financial systems. As the UK firms begin three-year transition period for operational resilience. Maintaining that momentum built during that first year is hugely important. Now, firms are facing many different challenges in building and embedding their resilience over the next three years, and this will require major investments. So when I talk about operational resilience in terms of target audience and service net. Top of mind for me would include chief risk officers, 
chief compliance officers, operational resilience teams within financial services, and firms that are in scope for the operational resilience policy. Now, the recently published Prudential Regulatory Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority business plans show that operational resilience is now a top UK supervisory priority, increasingly comparable to financial resilience in terms of regulatory resources and supervisory scrutiny firms can expect to receive. Now, this trend is certainly rapidly catching on other global jurisdictions. Since the FCA and the PRA publication of the Operational Resilience Policy Statements, PS21-3 and PS6-21, in March 2021, firms have been mobilizing resources and launching large-scale implementation programs to address these new requirements in time for the first regulatory milestone, which was 20, 31 March 2022. Now, firms are expected to identify and map their important business services, IBIS, set those impact tolerances, ITOs, also start the scenario stress testing programs, but also to identify vulnerabilities and produce self-assessments and to ensure the governance arrangements are in place. Now, while the past 12 months certainly have been hugely demanding, that operational resilience journey is only just beginning. Now, the three-year transition period runs until 31 March 2025, and the actions that firms take at that particular time will be crucial to their success. Their focus now moves to addressing the initial operational vulnerabilities identified, expanding on the mapping and the testing to detect and address those additional vulnerabilities, but importantly embedding operational resilience in the whole operating model to withstand severe but plausible disruptions. So I guess to sum up, not one firm should be waiting until the end of that transition period in 2025 to do this work. The UK regulators, the FCA and the PRA supervisors are expecting to see early progress being made and evidence of firms closing this gap on identified vulnerabilities as the transition progresses. Now, globally, operational resilience policies in other jurisdictions is moving fast and forward. We have the EU's Digital Operational Resilience Act, otherwise known as DORA. Now that's been finalized, cross-border financial services firms will need to consider that group approach to operational resilience, factoring in a number of requirements and timelines. So we've talked at length during this introduction about operational resilience and that transition period. In that 
of that journey only just begin. So where I would, I'd, I'd put it to you in terms of our first question. What do you see are the key areas for financial services firms to act on during this transition period? Thanks, Michael. Um, it's a, a very interesting topic, and I think um, you covered some of the key areas uh, in your intro already in terms of some of the expectations I think the regulator has. In addition to those, I think we're seeing a, a large difference in the way uh, firms are approaching uh, the regulations particularly. And I think as a result of that, we are seeing to varied approaches um, given how given how the uh, requirements that the FCA and the PRA have set are not uh, prescriptive. Um, they're more guidance and, and specific uh, to providing firms the ability to, to highlight certain areas where they need to improve and need to strengthen. So what we're seeing is because there is a, a level of uh, variance in terms of how firms are approaching regulations, things like mapping, uh, as you mentioned, things like impact tolerances, scenario testing, all seem to be uh, adopted in different ways um, to suit obviously the firms themselves. I think when we look at mapping particularly, and we look at something like the sophistication of mapping and the level of depth that mapping goes into and how automated mapping is, um, it, it seems to be a, a really big topic and a hot topic that we see in the market at the moment. And I think a large amount of uh, the reason behind that is purely just on the fact that a lot of firms uh, are still trying to get their head around what level or what depths do they need to map uh, to. And they're starting to also look at how do we exit from, as you mentioned, this transition period, but how do they exit from a project road where every all firms sort of set up an initial project to address the regulations. And what we're seeing now is uh, the realization that they need to get themselves out of that project mode and into a business as usual situation, a business as usual program. Uh, and because of that transition and the step that the people are making, what we're trying to see, what we're starting to see is the, the greater desire and greater need to have technology to start to drive a lot of the picture around uh, mapping in, in itself. And, and looking to tap into source data, like the source data for technology or the source data for uh, suppliers in the supply chain, uh, all of that is, is starting to become a, a real big uh, question on a lot of firms' minds um, and accessing that data. And I think what we've found and what we've seen so far is a lot of customers that we're, we're, we're dealing with and firms we're dealing with today um, are actually looking at this and haven't really done a full analysis uh, on all of the, the sources of data that are important from resilience be uh, before. And so they're actually having to go through quite a, a stringent approach around how they'll go through and identify what are these critical uh, mapping and, and uh, dependency uh, points and starting to sort of allocate them to the, the right areas within their hierarchies. And I think the second part about mapping um, is, is really honing in on the change management of that map. And I think uh, one, is, uh, one of the big sort of topics I see a lot of conversation around is, you know, how do you ensure change across that mapping in an efficient way? We know things are going to change. We know third party relationships are going to change. We know technology uh, structures are going to change. And how do we allow for our program, our operational resilience program, to adapt to those changes in effective manner? I think talking around impact tolerances specifically, I think what we're seeing uh, a heightened awareness uh, on impact tolerances is uh, how does this reflect and how does this uh, map towards 
some of the internal commitments we've made, such as recovery time objectives from a business process perspective. And how do the, how do we have those conflicts sort of highlighted? And is it okay to have a conflict? For example, is it okay that we have a situation where we have a, a, a recovery time objective or RTO um, that is set at a lower level than what we've seen uh, in terms of the expectations around impact times? And if there is a, a an element like that where we see the ability for us to um, have those situations in place, how do we actually address those? So for example, how are we looking at the overall customer harm or market integrity um, or financial stability in relation to that business service, even though we might have internal processes that can't deliver to our customers uh, set uh, impact tolerances. So I think that's a, a key point there just to say how do we start to see you know, expectations around internal processes and expectations of our customers and mapping the two and seeing do we have any conflicts and, and outliers in, in that approach. I think in addition to that, we're also seeing um, the different types of uh, impact tolerances in terms of units. Uh, we saw uh, obviously through the, the regulation itself, um, there's a mandate around timeframes, um, which obviously everyone has adopted. But we're seeing a lot of firms going a lot more deeper and a lot more uh, in, into uh, looking at stuff like customers that they support in terms of numbers, um, looking at where they've got vulnerable customers um, as a specific point. Um, so there are a number of different other uh, indicators or metrics that they're starting to look at as well, in addition to the timeframe banners in itself. I think on the scenario testing side, I think we've seen uh, a large amount of focus put on sort of the previous elements like mapping um, and particularly uh, elements like the uh, impact torrences. Um, and I think the, the scenario testing is, is probably starting to come to life to an extent. And what I mean by that is I think previously this was probably done largely as a desktop exercise, but we're seeing a, a much more bigger desire for using data to drive a lot of the scenario testing that's been performed. Um, we're also seeing that uh, some of the, the data that they are capturing within their resilience program should also start to drive, you know, what scenarios need to be tested. Um, so being able to sort of tap into common libraries and, and uh, areas with that specific data. And one particular point um, at a recent members meeting that, that was raised, I thought was quite pertinent is the specific topic around information sharing around scenario testing and the outcomes from scenario testing. And I think these are really important topics because I think if the firms themselves can start to share the data that they see and the lessons learned that they've got through their tests that they're performing, this allows other firms to actually start to leverage off that as well. And, and we can start to see a general sort of cohesion in the market um, where these scenarios are not just tested by one firm and, and cleared off by that firm giving the ability for other firms to learn from each other. I think there's just an overall desire and willingness to learn what we're seeing um, in the market today. And I think particularly from an embedment perspective in terms of bringing this from a business as usual, uh, well, sorry, it was a project into a business as usual um, position. I think we're seeing a large amount of focus around the roles and responsibilities that certain people need to, to play and, and, and run. So as a service owner, do service owners truly understand what their role is and their responsibility is as a service owner and uh, the implications of being a service owner? But I think this is one of the things that I think a lot of firms are, are starting to see come to fruition uh, when we start to see these programs come into, into business as usual and start to uh, kick in in a permanent fashion. 
And I think what we'll see is uh, typically a transition of ownership from these project teams or central teams and basically a transition into the business themselves, uh, the service owners themselves, and people who own the delivery functions, the operations of of these firms. Thank you, Amber. I guess just to follow up on your answers and talking about the IBS mapping, the impact tolerances, the development of the scenario testing, and I guess lastly the embedding of operational resilience in the firm. I know also the regulators, both the FCA and the PR, have indicated that actually they're expecting some of your key firms to include, as you talked about, a little bit, you know, that data integrity and the disruption to the third-party providers among the scenarios they use, as well as the the scenarios that are involved in those disruptions in, in multiple parts of the organization simultaneously. So that's going to be, a, I think, a key issue going forward. And I think certainly service now, given their technology, the tooling, and the solution, certainly can add value in that space. I take you to um, horizon scanning, regulatory horizon scanning, and considering the international regulatory developments. Raul, are, are you seeing that strong convergence of operational resilience in most global jurisdictions? Yes, there is a strong convergence on the key principles of financial services from an operational resilience in the global jurisdictions. As we all know, within banking, for example, we do have the Basel Committee 2021 principles on operational resilience, which is closely aligned with the UK framework, which the um, PRA and the FCA have been rolling out for the past couple of, let's say, years or months. The financial services organizations, for example, have been operate, they are operating internationally and will have different requirements to meet in various global geos. In like for cross-border groups need to make design decisions about how they structure their operational resilience framework and how this affects their target operating model. In case of, for example, the ECB or the European Central Bank, the approach to supervising operational resilience, which will be hugely important for any bank operating within the EU, to watch in 2022 and the years beyond, given that they will need to implement both DORA and uh, the BCBS principles, which is Basel, and they need to be implementing them in parallel. Of course, you have other jurisdictions or geos like Australia, the APRA, the US, Singapore, and Hong Kong. So I'll give it over to you, Michael. No, that's brilliant. I I guess just to follow up on the Australia-US Certainly on Australia's side, you know, we have APRA, which is the Australian Regulatory Authority. They've just released a draft Prudential Standard, CPS 230, on operational risk management, as you mentioned, rather. Most recently, actually, APRA have released those statements that to confirm that operational resilience has been a key focus for the regulator and considered operational resilience to be an umbrella term that includes operational risk, outsourcing, and BCM. And as you also noted, certainly in the US, the Federal Reserve, certainly back in 
October 2020, again released a regulatory paper on sound practices to strengthen operational resilience. Now that paper focuses on seven key sections, including governance, operational risk, business continuity management, third-party risk management, scenario analysis, surveillance and reporting. But importantly, that paper does not include any new requirements on US firms. They should also mention Singapore, the AMAS, the regulator, Monetary Authority of Singapore has adopted many of the processes and certainly in the UK approach. But funny enough, they have opted to update and integrate their processes into its business continuity guidelines. And lastly, as you mentioned, Hong Kong, the HKMA, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, in May of this year, they have released in their SPM the Supervisory Policy Manual on operational resilience. And this aligns again very closely with the UK approach requirements, including an expectation that all authorized institutions will complete their initial mapping and their framework in that first year and be fully implemented by three years. I guess I'll take you to the next question. And I, and I think maybe Emlyn Raudex can certainly chime in here. My question would be, what should firms be doing now? And importantly, how should they be engaging with third-party providers such as ServiceNow to sustain that momentum and throughout that transition period and comply with the respective requirements? Over to you guys. Thanks, Michael. I think from from my view, and I think sort of going back to some of the, th- the thoughts I mentioned at the start, I, I think from what we've seen, there's been a clear sort of view around uh, operational resilience um, that has sort of divided different firms. I think what we're seeing is that if we go back to the ultimate intention, the, the reason for the, the regulations themselves, um, it's really to increase market stability. It's to ensure that we don't have similar situations that we've had in the past that have caused a, a mass amount of impact onto customers. And if you look at that, there's going to be certain firms, I think, that are naturally in a higher uh, light from the regulator, who have a higher degree of impact as, as a firm themselves, um, versus other firms that potentially are looking at it um, from a different lens because they might not be as important to the overall market but still are covered by these regulations and therefore still need to go through and adhere to them. So I think due to that, we are seeing different approaches um, from companies and in different, uh, in different situations. And I think as a result of that, we see some that have truly adopted the, the regulations as, uh, as they're intended for and have actually used the operational resilience regulations themselves to actually drive a strategic transformation across the, the firm. Um, and looking at actually in adopting a more custom, customer-centric approach as the firm itself. And I think when we see that sort of strategy applied, I think you're get, obviously getting the most value out of the investment that you're making into, into resilience, as opposed to some firms who are seeing it more as a compliance activity um, that have to complete the, the various uh, requirements, have to show and demonstrate compliance against it. And I think that's you, you're never going to truly get that uh, full value that the, the actual regulations can, can provide 
if you don't sort of take that approach in terms of adopting it and embedding uh, resilience across and throughout your entire organization. And I think that particularly that point you mentioned around third parties, uh, we're seeing third parties as, as such a hot topic in the market at the moment. Um, and I think just the need to understand what does the role does a third party play um, in their programs? So for example, do uh, the third parties actually start to get proactively involved in the scenario tests that people run um, as they are critical to that delivery of, of, of a service? Um, and also, you know, how do they get assurances from their third parties and their suppliers that they are adhering to the resilience regulations themselves um, and do have resilient processes on their side and also what their connected parties are looking as well. So if we look at the extended enterprise, the fourth, fifth and sixth parties, you know, how do we actually, how does a firm get full assurance and confidence that that third party themselves and their connected firms as well suppliers are adopting and and are driving a resilient behavior and a resilience program also just to end i think we're starting to also see a large amount of focus um, from what i've seen as well on how do we start to leverage technology a lot better in driving a more automated and a more sophisticated approach around resilience i think no one uh, that i've met so far today um, has said that they are happy to update spreadsheets of maps uh, to do change management their entire life. Um, so I think there's a clear recognition that tapping into source data, using data to drive their program, and actually having that data-centric approach to resilience is definitely where a lot of organizations and, and firms are looking to be. Um, and I think particularly on the point where you start to see some of these new regulations pop up, um, it just makes it even more important that you have a, a program that is fully embedded and to the best extent automated to reduce the amount of burden uh, that this this program can uh, put onto your business. Rauda, do you have any views on that? I'll say I concur with a lot of things that you've added and just add a couple of points just to cover it as well. We do see our customers understanding and accepting that severe but plausible disruptions will happen, but that building the resilience and the framework around it will require, again, investment from senior management. So let's say from the top to bottom, where you will see a lot of commitment around to implementing that framework, how, again, data plays a strong part from a preparedness and how do you want to implement and how do you want to use your data across. And as mentioned earlier, banking or FS will always have the, the challenge of different geos and how they'll be implementing and managing that kind of data aspect across their organizations from a geo perspective. Also, Michael mentioned uh, BCM and how a lot of the, let's say the regulators are also putting BCM under the microscope from an operational resilience perspective. We do see a lot of, let's say, revival or a reassessment of the BCM programs across from a European standpoint and how that will pull into the full operational framework or the operational resilience framework and how I can understand my underlying data components and how I can look at it from a let's say, um, a senior management or a top view where I can understand all of the elements that compromise or let's say build up to that IBS that we've mentioned earlier or the data that we've comp that we have accumulated within the tooling. Let me just stress, tooling has been recognized as a huge aspect of how customers want to address a lot of the programs that they want to push across their organization. And how tooling can help them start from, it's a maturity journey, start from, let's say, 
a manual approach and how they can build the frameworks and how they can build the programs into a more advanced and mature, uh, let's say, stage where they start automating and collecting the data, making sure the data is sound, and then it would all formulate nicely into that view that they all want to look at from that top level. So yes, uh, that's my two cents on this. Ellen, Radev, thank you very much for your comments. Certainly sounds like the next three years is going to be a very busy time for our firms in terms of needing to act early to address those vulnerabilities and still that operational resilience mindset throughout the firms. Thank you for listening. That wraps up our podcast today. If you want to hear more about operational resilience from a European perspective, we also have the Dora podcast lined up for all you listeners. One particular spot where you find all of this information on operational resilience is on our ServiceNow website under operational resilience, details providing solutions, products, platform, and even a demo on GRC. One call of action for all you listeners is that if you've liked and enjoyed this podcast, can I please ask you to recommend the podcast to your work colleagues and contacts. Lastly, I'd like to thank my distinguished guests today, Emlyn and Rauda. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topic discussed in today's podcast, download our white paper, Seven Strategic Insights to Real Operational Resilience, or visit the ServiceNow website. In the next episode of Real-Time Resilience, we will explore the topic of DORA, the fast-approaching Digital Operational Resilience Act. Make sure to tune back in.